to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 49 with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And Mark Svatsky from Choose Boston. And uh, joining us today is our guest. John Belboni, how are you? Thanks for having me. No problem, John. I feel like sometimes these virtual things have a bit of a lag to them. So uh, we're just figuring these all out 10 weeks in now. Sure thing. It's amazing the fact that we've been remote for 10 weeks and uh, I think we'll be at least remote for a few more and hopefully opening up soon over the summer and getting back to normal as quick as we can. Interesting question, talking a lot about office workers continuing to work from home. Do you think that office land or that employers should provide some sort of subsidy for your electric usage, for your home office, for all of those ancillary expenses that would typically be, uh, be borne on the employer? Sure. You know, it's funny. I haven't heard, you know, supplementing my electric bill, but, but certainly <laughs> things, that, things that make my, my day-to-day easier, we have tried to, to do that for our employees, uh, whether it's computer screens or printers is the big one, just so that we can you know, work more efficiently from home. What we've done, and, and maybe to step back, so I'm a partner in a law firm here in Boston. I've been there for over 15 years. I practice primarily, obviously, in the real estate space. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit later about opportunity zones and how we focus there. Um, but what we've done is sort of a hybrid approach. We send, I, under the governor's order, we were deemed essential because we provide essential services to other essential businesses. And what we've done there is uh, we're allowed to send certain people into work every day. And so while there'll be some attorneys who go in, there's also some support staff. And that's made things a lot more seamless and uh, easier to work from home and efficient to get things mailed to you or mailed out or conduct closings, which has been a, been a challenge. No question about it. Uh, so we're trying to make the best of it as we can. Yeah, great. Uh, how has it gone doing the um, closings and all of the recordings um, virtually? Uh, a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> for, for example, like one, it's two sort of trouble spots that we ran into just this week. The Middlesex South registry was closed, I believe, last week because they had a case. And so they closed down for the week for a deep clean. So we had to work with the title company to be able to, to go to record, or at least be a, virtually go to record. And the other one was uh, we needed a bunch of documents notarized and our client was in New York. And so he's in a suburb of New York and you know he now has to go find someone who can notarize those documents from six feet away and then mail them back to us. So it's, it has its logistical issues. But for the most part, we can talk about it, like what we're seeing in the landscape. Closings are happening and transactions are going forward. I don't like I don't like to brag, but uh, I'm a notary public in Massachusetts. All right. So we'll get you on. the. the Have have you seen have you seen closings slow down at all in terms of like the the volume? Okay, when you say slow down, I think of slowing down in a couple of different ways. So certainly one is volume. What I would say and what I've experienced personally is that transactions that were in the queue that were happening 10 weeks ago or were lined up to happen, for the most part, at least in my own personal experience, I would say 90% of my transactions are still going forward. We certainly have had some go on the sidelines. We've had some uh, get shelved while people are trying to figure out uh, what to do in this new age. So there's been some of that. In terms of just uh, efficiency of getting a transaction completed, it's just taking longer. There was one transaction that we had started probably in February that was slated to close in April, and we're lucky if we're going to make June. It just takes longer. It just does. People aren't, you know, as much as we are working from home and trying to be as seamless as possible, it just takes longer. And you lose time throughout the day, and it's just harder to connect with people, both within your own team and then on the other side of a transaction. So I've seen 
the quote slowdown in a couple ways. Sounds like in a post-COVID scenario or environment, people are going to be going back to the office because I know there's a lot of discussions around, you know, how many people will stay remote afterwards and a lot of employees want to, but is that the best efficiency for the organization? Yeah, probably not. Like I, I would say, certainly in my own, again, like my own practice of what I do, there are days when I just need to be in the office. I need, I need to work with my assistant. I need to work with a paralegal. And I need to work with my colleagues just because it's, it, just, it will go quicker. But you're right. Certainly, we took a poll at work, and we have probably in our Boston office 200 employees, so lawyers and staff, 25% said they don't want to return to work until there's a, a vaccine. And so, yeah, that, those, are, those are the realities. And I, I don't know if that's a media scare that you have to stay home or no one wants to get sick. But, you know, look, for those who are in a higher risk category, I think it makes some sense. Like safer at home is the governor's plan. We just got to figure out how to make it all work. Absolutely. Yeah. So the topic of today, or at least one of the topics, was opportunity zones, right? That's correct. How about I give a brief understanding, my understanding of opportunity zones, and then you can tell me how right or wrong I am. and then fill in the listeners. Because my understanding of it is certain geographical areas, usually areas where economic activity has been lacking, are defined as these opportunity zones where if you invest your money and you, you know, help improve the neighborhoods, uh, whether it's commercial, residential, what have you, over time, there is a pretty significant tax benefit. And that did have, opportunity zone kind of became this buzzword about a year or two ago on our radar. I haven't actually done, Dan and I haven't actually done an opportunity zone deal. I think we know maybe one person that has, but the way I understand it is that these are very long-term plays and it's not like you can go in, make some condos in an area, and then you're getting some kind of benefit. So how'd I do? Uh, You did pretty good. You don't Uh, have to be polite. You can, you can (laughs) give it to him real. Uh, no, he, you know, he captured, you know, most, most of the essence of what, what an opportunity zone transaction would look like. It is certainly a tax advantage structure where you are correct that about two or three years ago, the governors designated within their state uh, 25% of the low-income housing census tracts, underprivileged areas, and we'll put that right now maybe in air quotes, designated as opportunity zones where if you invested in those particular areas and created some economic activity, you would get this tax relief. Um, And I say all ozones or opportunity zone areas aren't the same. Some would be considered, like in our own geographic market, Somerville, which is already in the path of development. It didn't need probably a push. The Bayside Expo Center, another what we considered the gem of the Boston designated zones, right on the water, 20 acres. That was all public. You saw that the state sold that for $200 million. So again, those weren't under their low-income housing census tracts because nobody lives there. And so that's just how they got, they got the designation. And look, Every governor picked them. They got certified by the Treasury. So those are the areas. And then to go to the tax side of it, why you want to push that, that type of investment, If in, it's driven all right now by capital gains. So if I had capital gains, I could make an investment in what they call a qualified opportunity fund within a certain amount of time. And then that fund has another is on another clock, so to speak, to invest that money in one of these areas. And if they do that, and at this point going forward, if I do it today, I will get a 10% step up in my basis. So if I had a million dollar gain, I have to pay my tax no matter what in 2026. So instead of paying tax on a million dollars, I would pay it on $900,000. So there's a little bit of relief there. I also don't have to pay my tax for another six years. So I get the time value of my money. 
But I think as as you alluded to, the, the, the biggest pop, what everyone is playing for is that if you hold the investment for 10 years, you sell it at a, at a gain. In my example, it was a million dollar investment. We sell it in 10 years and a day for $10 million because it appreciated. That $9 million of new gain is all tax-free. That's pretty incredible. Now, are, are they talking, what if you do some kind of major value add? Is that what it's designed for? You know, take an empty track of land or something that's not even being used and build on it. So that basically the entire portion of whatever you make is forgivable or or is that too simplified? Of a- Again, you capture the essence of it. The idea, it's an economic stimulus program. It, so this is, to, to also to back up, this is really this current administration's only economic sort of domestic policy, and they are, they are full bore behind it. What they want to do is drive economic activity in these particular areas. And so in, in order to do that, I mentioned these clocks that you're on, there's some urgency to spend the money. Their idea is in order to qualify, you have to spend it by substantially improving those particular areas. So like the example that is typically given is you have to improve the basis of a building, if there's a building on it, by 100%. So you bifurcate land value and building value. And so you call it 80-20, sort of a normal mark in most markets. Uh, you have to improve the value of that building by 100%. Can we go back to the, when you first started talking about the uh, the explanation here? You were mentioning something about you can take capital gains and roll it into a fund. Can you just explain, maybe at a high level, kind of like, where the source of capital gains come from? Does that mean I'm selling another asset to get it? In other words, I can't just take money that I had in a bank account and throw it in there. And then who puts together this fund and, and what is the fund like? Sure. So, so to break that down, so, so the whole program was designed around freeing up capital gains or people that had locked up value in particular assets, whether it was stock, a building, artwork, anything that had appreciated. And what the policymakers said was there's a lot of un uh, or there's a lot of trapped value there and people can't sell it. Like, so for example, if you had AT&T stock or IBM stock or whatever, Google stock, Bitcoin, that you had all this trapped value, you had no place to put it without suffering a, a tax consequence. So they came up with this idea. If you sell one of those appreciable assets, again, real estate, stock, whatever, you then take that money, the gain and stick it into a qualified opportunity fund. So to answer your second question, what is what is our who puts those together? It runs the gamut. It's traditional fund managers would put them together, or individuals. So Mark or Dan or Ray could have their own personal gain and put their own fund together to use that as a vehicle to, to shelter their tax and get the tax advantage. So it runs the gamut from institutions, real estate companies, and individuals are putting making use of the structure. It probably would not be any gains that I've ever made in the stock market because I don't think those exist. Um, <laughs> but I could probably structure the fund with help from someone like you. But this all this sounds similar to like what we would uh, see as a tax deferred exchange, right? Like a 10, 1031. Is it is it similar? Somewhat. In, in a ten thirty one structure, you you never pay the tax, right? You're, you're constantly rolling your investments, you sell it, you put your money with an intermediary, and then you're, you're on a clock there too to reinvest it mm. within so many days by identifying a property and then, then closing on the replacement property. Some, some people have called this the 1031 for stock because there was no availability to use a 1031 for securities, but it is somewhat similar. The difference here being though that in 2026, you will have to pay a tax. 
that was the underlying principle that you wouldn't get just a complete free pass. What do you mean in, in 2026, you would need to pay a tax? So if you had your gain today, so if I sold yeah. my, my Bitcoin and I harvested a million dollars worth of mm. gain, let me, let me use a different example. Let me spec up. If, if I sold my building in downtown Boston and I had a million dollar gain, I could, in your example, you do a 1031. I could find a replacement property, plow all my, my, my total proceeds into that property, and I have no, it's a tax deferred exchange. I don't have to pay any tax. If I elected to take my, my gain off the sale of my building in Boston and put it in a fund, a qualified opportunity fund, as I mentioned earlier, I wouldn't have to pay a tax right away. And depending again now how long I held that asset, so for more than five years, that's the initial threshold, I would get a reduction in my basis uh, of the tax that I owed. But I always owe a tax on my gain in 2026. That's just the legislative, what they call scoring, that they needed to sort of figure out what the budgets were going to be down, down the road. So they, they wanted to at least capture some taxable dollars in six years. Is the investment in a fund different than investing, actually buying a piece of land in an opportunity zone, or is it one and the same? It's one and the same. And maybe there's some, there's some misperception when we call it a fund. A lot of people say, heard the word, well, it's a fund. And that means, you know, either hundreds of investors or big institutions. Now, funds can be set up again by individuals or by real estate companies, and they can have anywhere from one investor to 99 investors. But the idea, the, the, the convoluted nature of both the tax code and the legal structure is you have to put your money into this vehicle, a fund, to get the benefit. That, that kicks it all off. And again, that's just an LLC. Then that LLC will in, invest the money in what they call a qualified opportunity zone business. That's sort of the preferred structure, which is just another LLC below it. And that LLC buys the buys the bills. I see. Okay. So I'm still I'm still struggling with this tax thing. I'm just, sorry. I was just thinking. Sure. You have the million dollar capital gain. You're not paying it, but you're paying it at 2026. So the idea is that the present value would be of that tax on the capital gain would be less in 2026, obviously, versus today. Is that really? Is that it? Oh, the time value of your money that you didn't have to write the government a check today that, yeah, you would have time value. Yes, I guess the, the way you're describing it is correct, that the, the time value would be less than the tax you would ultimately pay. In so you're deferring, you're deferring your tax. That's right. And, and right. the way you, what accountants have modeled it out, they can pick up like a 300 to 400 basis point lift throughout that cycle, the time value plus the reduction in your overall taxable amount. So I guess that still requires some careful planning because what would the exit strategy be, assuming that you've put all that money into a project like this in an opportunity zone through the fund? If you're, ta- say, if to keep it simple, you're in a 25% tax bracket uh, for capital gains, or maybe we'll just call it like 15% for long term if it, if it was that. Either way, let's just call it like $150,000 that you would owe. If you haven't sold that asset that you rolled the money into, then what? Yeah, and you don't want to sell it because you want to hold it for 10 years to get your you know, long-term long-term play here. The idea is to create economic stability, not only economic activity in a zone, but economic stability as well by being there for, for a set amount of time, 10 years, a decade. So how do you pay your tax in 2026? A couple different ways. The tried and true strategies are you tell your investors, say, look, we're going to make distributions after we get the property stabilized, like save, save, your, save your money, like because you, you do owe a tax. Another is to do a refi in year uh, in 2026 
to help uh, create proceeds for that taxable event. The other strategy that we've employed is to, as a sponsor, offer our investors uh, liquidity or a line of credit at that time if they're short. And so there, there are strategies to try to get you there, mostly refi distributions and perhaps as a last resort, a, a line of credit to help meet that obligation. Okay. Those are three good options there. You mentioned something else also about, was it just that the tax would be zero or be forgiven? What did I misunder, mis, uh, mishear nope, that? that? That's the whole program in a nutshell. What you're doing is, so the, if the five of us got together, pooled our capital gains, and we don't have to have all capital gains. It could be myself and Mark have capital gains and the three others don't. They just have pure savings. We pool our money together. We make an investment. We hold it for 10 years. And at the end of it, at least for, for Mark and myself, we if we had capital gains and we had gain on our investment, we would get gain relief, so we would have no tax. The, the others would, would pay tax on their gain because they didn't have the benefit of the program. I see. Okay. That's a lot. <laughs> it, it, it's powerful. It really is powerful. And, and I know one of the topics that we wanted to sort of touch on today was how will opportunity zones lead the resurgence or the recovery after or during COVID-19? And it's our belief, and I think also bolstered and supported by the government, is that they, they wanted to have, have sort of a centerpiece in the recovery. Can I interrupt you for a second? Sure, go ahead. I've been, I've been queuing up. I have, uh, we had an economist join us earlier in the year. His name's Ed Glazer, and uh, he's from Harvard. And we asked him specifically about his thoughts on opportunity zones. And I'll see if I can get this uh, very sophisticated audio to work by holding my iPhone to the microphone. Let's see if, if this plays. Supposed to do this, but it certainly doesn't appear to be that there's anything that's that's really positive. And in fact, in residential areas, we're looking at residential prices. The impact appears to be negative, and that's not crazy in the sense that what an opportunity zone does is it subsidizes more supply, right? And subsidizing more supply doesn't push prices up; it pushes prices down, as we've been as we've been talking about. Now, lots of times you like that, but often these areas were chosen not because there was huge demand for these areas for these areas, but the reverse. So it may well be that that the impact of subsidizing supply in these areas is actually depressing. Price. And partially, this is a, a, a reminder that in a city like Boston, in a city that its economy is jamming, right, you really do need more construction to make things work up. New construction is not the solution for Detroit's problems, right? It's the reverse, right? But Detroit needs is better schools and more safety. And so uh, a supply. Right, I'll figure that out. <laughs> I almost feel like how, how we get, we don't have Ed here to defend his statements, Mark. <laughs> That's okay. We'll bring him on for another episode. But I guess his general. A thesis there is that uh, increasing supply by incentivizing folks to come in to a place like Detroit and build, build, build is not going to drive prices up, but rather down. It's interesting. I've been to Detroit. They have a lot of opportunity zones. Uh, and we actually took a, a tour with a developer there probably a year ago to understand what, what that market would look like. Sure, you know, just building things for the sake of building them doesn't, doesn't help an economy. But there's two thoughts to this, this program. One is the, the creation of new assets. So again, if you're building lab space or multifamily or affordable housing or warehousing, which needs it right now, or data centers to process certain telecommunications and whatnot, those do have, are, are additive and impactful for communities. The other side of the coin for opportunity zones, which isn't perhaps, the, you know, um, Jermaine, for this, this particular podcast, is that it does apply to businesses too. And so we have done a fair amount of business investment, whether it be in storage facilities, data centers, manufacturing, where 
you can aggregate capital gain dollars through an opportunity fund and make an investment in a business. There's a whole set of rules for that and how that looks. But again, in this sort of post-recovery mode that we're trying to get ourselves into as a country, that's why I think it has a two-pronged effect, both on the real estate development side and the business side. So I guess I don't quite agree with his, his statement. Appreciate the response. I had that queued up since this morning. That was going to be my big gotcha here. So that's, <laughs> thank you. Can you just help? So I guess that that's an interesting point because when, when you think about opportunity zones, you know, you don't think about the commercial aspect of it. So what's the, just the general, I know we, we define what the opportunity zone process and system is like, but what was the whole thought process behind the government doing this type of thing is it is it to is it to help the economy in these depressed areas get better from a safety and a you know education standpoint or or what what's the just the overall driving factor besides obviously tax benefits to the people that are investing in there I would say the, the, the government's idea was to, to come up with a, with a program that would drive economic activity into areas that otherwise wouldn't be the benefit or the, the beneficiary of these types of dollars. And so they wanted to sort of juice the reason why you would go to some places. And I started off the podcast by saying all zones aren't equal, and they just aren't. And I've been to countless seminars and conferences where people will say, some areas are just never going to get the investment dollars. They're just, they're, they're just too far-fetched for an investment thesis to go. But if you can create a viable economic program, like, for example, Worcester. Worcester was sort of becoming more cutting edge. Providence, again, trying to improve themselves. Some states, were, some municipalities were very strategic in how they laid out and made a case for why certain areas should be a zone to attract these types of dollars. And so I, I think it, the idea is, create a program to drive economic activity in certain areas so that they can improve and they improve over the long term. So it's not sort of a hit and run, like I build it and sell it. And it's not just your Rite Aids and CVSs. It's supposed to be an active business. And how do you create sort of stability? You bring jobs. And that's that's what people are hoping for. That makes sense. That makes sense. So it's really up to the, the individual state governments to kind of figure out what locations are best suited for these particular opportunity zones is what you were what you were alluding to earlier i think right that's correct they've all been selected now and then the, so the call went out two or three years ago to, to designate your zones hey government hey governors all your states have low-income housing census tracts so you know pick 25 percent of them and then designate those as zones and some states did a much better job than others some states were very nervous Certainly there was lobbying going on because certain developers wanted their tracks selected. That's just part of the process. But I would say Massachusetts was pretty balanced. Um, you have a good mix of rural and urban sites for, for development. Like Brockton would be one, transit-oriented, student housing near Bridgewater State University, some places on the Cape if they thought maybe hotels would be it. So it was definitely mixed throughout. And then you know, the typical areas that you would think, Holyoke, Springfield. Other communities, Lawrence, up on the North Shore. We know that the opportunity zones aren't necessarily continuous through a municipality or a town. They're, they can be just parts of Holyoke, for example. What happens if you have a building that's a half a block outside of that boundary? Is there a way to uh, seek to remedy that? Unfortunately, no. You're, you're, you're either in or you're out. 
people have asked us, like, again, what I would describe as in South Boston, Mr. Avenue, some of these zones are pretty random when you think about it. Like, so for example, where I mentioned also Bayside Expo Center, on that side of Morrissey Boulevard, some parts of that are a zone and the other parts are not. Um, so it, it was sort of a little bit random. And no, once the zones are set, they're set. There is a rule that says if your property is in a zone and the property boundary line extends beyond the zone into sort of a non-zone area, I guess you would call it, there is some tests that say you can get the whole thing to, um, to count, if you will. They call it str- straddled property. Yeah. Um, there's some testing that goes on for that. And what's the smallest deal that you guys have done uh, with an opportunity zone? I assume that this doesn't is not cost effective for a three family, for example. Uh, we've done three families. Yeah, again, for your if, again, if you personally had the gain, if an individual mm-hmm. had it and wanted to shelter it in a property like a three family business, uh, yeah, we have we have done them as small as that and as large as you know several you know what do you call it nine figures. What are the administrative costs of, of, of the opportunity fund and creating the fund? And then, you know, I assume most of these are legal costs. There are. Uh, there are some legal costs that go, go to it, obviously, to set the fund up. And again, it depends on the complexity of your structure, whether it's for one or two individuals or if it's for 50, as I mentioned. So those mm-hmm. costs run all around. You'd have some accounting costs because you need a good accountant to help you with the compliance tests as they go on. For the bigger funds, you have a fund administrator that helps deal with all the investor relation issues, but otherwise not so much. Like there's a separate form you have to file with the government uh, or the IRS to say that you are a fund. Everything right now is also self-certified. So it's not as if there, you, you always have audit, audit risk, but right now you're self-certifying to everything as you go. So that's, that's the structure or the administrative hassle, if you will. So it's not much. Question about the timing, because we know with a 1031 exchange, you have a certain amount of time between when you sell the asset and when you have to identify and purchase the next asset. Is there a similar timing requirement for this? Could I, or is it all just in with, within one tax year? So in other words, could I expect a capital gain of a project or an event or a sale of stock or something? And then have already purchased something and then allocate the, the, the gain towards that? Like a 1031, there is there are timing hurdles throughout the program. And so the basic time frame would be, uh, let's use January 1st. That's an easy one to do. You recognize your gain on January 1st. What it says is you have six months to put that money into a qualified opportunity fund. You're on the clock. You have six months to, to say which direction you're going to go. I'll, I'll note now because of the, the COVID situation, you now, depending on where your dates fell, you have an outside date to July 15th. So it gave you a little bit longer than six months to sort of get your stuff in order. So then you put your money within six months in a fund. Then that fund, again, because of the economic urgency attached to it, is supposed to have 90% of its cash in a, into an opportunity zone within six, within six months of that. And there's some, there's some uh, like skipping dates on your first test date and whatnot. But you push the money, as I mentioned before, down into your subsidiary called the Qualified Opportunity Zone Business. Then there are then safe harbors to spend up to 55 months or even longer, depending on location and, and need or issue to spend that capital. So the idea is you are on the clock to get your money in. Then you have to pay attention to these timing requirements. Again, all driven underlying it is the idea that they want you to spend it because they don't want you to sit on it. You're not supposed to land bank. You're supposed to start to create economic activity in that area 
to fulfill the policy behind the program. But it definitely sounds as if the timing is nowhere near as restrictive as like a 1031. So that that's actually a pretty helpful and pretty positive um, aspect of it. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, having done a bunch of 1031s in my day, yeah, to get once you're on the clock, so to speak, and have to identify three properties, yeah, it gets a little tight. Can we go into a little bit more on 1031s? I think it's a topic that we've just danced around on this podcast, but uh, one that we're certainly interested in. What are the requirements if you're going to exercise a 1031 exchange? What does like-kind actually mean? What are some other things that might trip uh, an investor up who's, who's looking at this for the first time? It's been some time since the, my experience in the 1031, but back in the day, I did a lot of what they call tenant in common transactions, which were driven under the 1031 program. What, you, what you're trying to find is you sell your property and then you have, I think it's 35 or 45 days to identify a replacement property. And then, yeah, I think it's 45 days to identify a replacement property. And you can select up to three properties that you may buy. You don't have to buy them. And then 135 days after that to close on that property. And there, so that's, that's the, I believe, you know, one of the concerns is like, how do you find something right away? How do you know something will be out there? And when you say like kind, it's real estate for real estate. So, it, and it could be, again, it could be hotel for hotel. It could be hotel for office, office for multi. It's just another investment property. That's like kind. It's but I not, can't sell my like snowboard collection and buy a building with the person. No, uh, okay. you, you can't, you, nor can you buy nor can you sell your interest in a company like your stock yeah. and say, I want to go buy a piece of real estate. That's Those aren't, quote, like kind. And the the bills are due one day, right? Like, and it, I, I've heard people often say like, oh, I rolled the profits into this building. And then when I sell that building in 20 years, I'm going to have no capital gains. I'm not sure that's, that's fraud, true. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, what, what happens is you, you the, the, the joke is you win when you die. Um, <laughs> If you keep rolling and you keep always rolling your gain, you're never paying the tax. The tax due on that, so the IRS never realizes it. And what they say is, when, when you when you die, you get a step up in basis. Mm-hmm. So that again, you keep rolling, 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 and then if your basis is negative, it doesn't matter. It just, it just magically when because you, you're not there to worry about it, I suppose. But your yeah. beneficiaries and your heirs will get the benefit of that. And so yeah, the government never never realized the tax. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things with the state tax law where if you skip a generation, you know, it like wipes out all the capital gains. Like maybe do a, a longer episode about this when I actually uh, know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I'm not, not, I, I know enough to be dangerous on that topic too. It's like, again, there are different tax mechanisms out there for, to help preserve wealth for individuals for sure. I heard one area of the law which is very busy these days is estate planning. Oh, that's yes. I would say that both from a, I think with people with time on their hands have figured Mm -hmm. out like I better get my affairs in order. So I've heard that from my colleagues in the in the trust and the states department for sure. Mark, do you have a uh, do you have an estate plan? Uh, Recently, uh, we we did this in the past year or so. So yes, yeah. Going back to quickly to the opportunity zones, is there a time limit? So when when does this all go away? Uh, so right now, the program would end at the end of 2026. They, they want all the investments right now um, to be made by that time in order to get the benefit of the hold. And then if you do buy a property today and you're taking advantage of it, you do have to liquidate it, I believe, in 2046. They want you at some point to turn that property over and you can sell it to yourself. Again, that's pretty far out. The hope is that the program gets extended. Lots of these tax programs that do turn out to be positive 
do get extended by, by the government. And we can talk about what they're trying to plan now in this next wave of stimulus, how they're trying to tweak the program to even make it what we call supercharge it, make it better. So it's it's right now it does have a shelf life, but the hope in the in the plan would be for it to extend out. Yeah, tell us more about that. You think that um, in the post-COVID world, the uh, government may look to programs like Opportunity Zones and, and implement them more widely or more powerfully to try to prompt a, uh, a rebound. I think so. What we've been so we're part of a, a thought leadership group out of Washington D.C., which. You know, said another way, it's, it's certainly a real estate lobbying group that works with the Senate and congressmen to get certain legislative policies pushed forward. Uh, as I mentioned before, opportunity zones, for, for what they are, they are clearly one of the administration's hallmarks, and they're really pushing it hard to ha- have this be a, a centerpiece of the recovery. Right now, all the stimulus that, stimulus that we have seen has been mostly focused on cash flow and individuals, right? Getting those stimulus checks, getting businesses the loans, keep payrolls going. At some point, that needs to shift, and I think that's what this latest uh, $3 trillion program is that's coming out of, out of the democratically controlled Congress to say, look, what is the longer-term picture going to look like that can create more opportunities? On the Senate side, they will certainly push opportunity zones. And I can go through a couple. Uh, to highlight, you know, as time allows, there's really three elements that will, what we call, supercharge the program and help lead it. And one of those, the first one is, if you take away the requirement that it be capital gains and it can be any gain, any dollar. So I think as someone said, Mark, you may have said it earlier, if I just have a savings account and have saved cash and I can put it into one of these programs and then in 10 years, get it out tax-free, you will open up a much broader market to raise capital from. And so that'll be the floodgates. Every Lots of these areas and these businesses who can conduct business in those areas will certainly see an influx of capital. That is number one on everyone's agenda to get that changed. That'd be cool. Um, It'd be really cool. It would just really allow everyone to take advantage of it. Because if you think about it, the policy was create economic activity in these areas. Take an area like a Brockton or a Lawrence or areas that are somewhat depressed and drive economic activity. It shouldn't matter what type of dollar does that. It's just a question of, how you pay for it at the end of the day. And look, a lot of this is because it's tax relief, someone has to pay for it. But right now in this age of stimulus, there doesn't seem to be any any sort of control or governor on spending. So why not? Just let it all, let it all go. <laughs> Open the floodgates. <laughs> exactly. I, I say to my children, I'm like, thank you because you guys are going to pay for all this. Uh, <laughs> and they're probably looking at you saying, my kids will pay for it yeah. too. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a little crazy on that. Another driver that would help also bring certainty to the program is, as we in a segue in from who pays for this all, is to lock in the capital gains rate of what you pay in 2026. We spent a lot of time talking about, yes, you will pay taxes in, in, uh, at that time, but what, at what rate? So people are worried, um, let me step back, the rate you would pay in 2026 is the then effective rate in 2026. So people are now cautiously worried that in order to pay for all this stimulus, God knows what the capital gains rate will be in six years. So they said, look, give me more certainty to put my dollars at work right now. Lock my lock today's rate in when I make my investment. Lock that in to uh, six years from now. And so that's another high, high item on the agenda to get a change on there. And then the other one would be, uh, as we talked about, 
um, how much economic activity do I really have to do? And we had said you have to improve that building by 100%, the, the basis in that building. There's talk about can we lower that to a more manageable threshold. So, for example, in order to hit 100% of the building value or building basis, you basically are doing ground up or a, or a major rehab to that, that site and from, from a real estate perspective. But if you're allowed to do value add or adaptive reuse that doesn't quite spend all that, doesn't spend 100%, but it spends, let's say, 50% of the building basis, what would that do? How would you create more activity that way? So again, it's just trying to get creative on, on ways to help spend the dollars and drive activity there. So the latest we've heard coming out of our, our think tank that we work with is that Treasury is considering, there's also like probably seven or eight more items, some technical, some not so technical, but we would expect at least half of the proposals that they've been making to come out of this next stimulus bill. And you, what the other thought is you need a stimulus package to pass this. There's not a lot of appetite generally to pass just one-off tax legislation, but within this whole sweeping uh, policy change, you'll probably see some of it come through. These These are all good points because I was going to ask that we've covered a lot of the positives. We are, we've probably covered most of the positives at this point. And what are the negatives or what are the risks? So, so let's run one of those scenarios. Let's say we get to 10 years down the road or 2026, whatever, whatever the date is, and we haven't met that threshold, say it's the, the 100%. It does just any, any, any of the benefit that I would have had is now gone? The negatives, so yeah, we can count the negatives a couple of different ways. So, so your example is what happens if I just fail to meet the, the compliance tests that the statute requires? And there are some cure periods that are built in to help you mitigate that. There are ways that you, there are some penalties so that if you had, in our example, a million dollars that you were supposed to spend, but you only spent half a million, yeah, you might pay a penalty on the other half. So there's, there's certainly some restrictions uh, on that. What I would also say is there's, within the statute itself, anti-abuse provisions, and there's a call to have more anti-abuse provisions so that people don't game it to the detriment of, of these areas. And so what they want you to do is say, look, if you're going to take advantage of any of the rules or the, or the leniency or the flexibility that the statute is now providing or that will be provided come some legislative changes, that there's a trade-off for that. So that you have to be defensible is one. You have to keep good records that you're actually meeting the policy behind it. You also mentioned what, you know, what are the general negatives of the program. You know, the program doesn't have all supporters, as I think we heard the economists say before. There is some, some negatives in the sense that is it really helping the communities for which it was designed? And so the, the balance to that is there's a, there's a push and a directive to have more reporting and more monitoring of how are these actually benefiting the community? To step back and give more perspective, when the program first came out, it was likened to something called the new markets tax credits, which have all these reporting and all these oversights and all this community involvement. Now, to like those onto this program became too onerous and that was quickly abandoned, but it left or resonated this idea that, well, maybe we should have some monitoring going on. So the negatives of the program or the, or the safeguards or people call guardrails to the program are to try to put some of that in place so that it does have the positive benefit for which it was designed, and it's not just a big tax shelter for the rich. I think a good way to uh, to wrap this up here. 
uh, to go back to where we started, why don't you tell us all the things you learned, Ray, and John can critique? (laughs) Well, I certainly learned that the time value is uh, far more flexible. Definitely learned about the organizational structure of it uh, in terms of the, uh, it can be anything from one person to up to 99. I don't know, is 99 the limit? Uh, It doesn't have to be, but that's usually when something might become, you have to monitor that. So you don't become like a publicly or reporting company. Just brings another level of burden to you. Got it. And actually, before I continue summarizing here, one quick question, which I did have on the top of my mind and I forgot to ask. SEC filings or or requirements, are there any? Uh, Sure. Again, depends how you structure your deal. Again, if you're doing a larger fund offering, there's usually typically blue sky filings. You're usually doing what they call an exempt transaction so that you don't have to make a public filing to do your program. But, you know, typical Reg D, they call it, offerings that go on. Some have been done through the crowdfund. There's another offering rule that you can go under to do the, through like a real crowd site. We've certainly done some that way as well. So yeah, there's some, obviously some security and investment company and investment advisor act stuff to keep, keep mindful of, but you know, sure you can avoid a lot of that. Perfect. And, and then just a couple other things to summarize, uh, make sure I'm speaking correctly here that we're talking about funds that are just derived currently from capital gains, but it can be from any source as, as opposed to a 1031 where it has to come from a, a like-kind exchange. And uh, what else are we uh, covering here? I mean, it's 25% of low-income tracks that the uh, state gets to divvy up. So of the entire base, it's 25% of those. And I'm, th- I'm thinking that's really the high points. I know we covered a lot of ground. So how's you that? got it. I think you got it. I think that's right. And you can find all, all that information about where the sites are through a state's, I guess, Secretary of State's website. You know, certainly if you typed in Massachusetts Opportunity Zones or any state's Opportunity Zones, you would find a list. Um, you can poke around. There are definitely resources out there now that have been developed. There are certainly lots of information out there as the market matures. And, and I'll say, you know, we started off by saying, you know, it, it still remains one of the hotter topics in real estate. For sure, because again, most real estate guys hate to pay taxes, maybe driven in part by their love of the 1031, but it certainly is 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 the buzz within the real estate community still as to how can I put put this structure to work to save taxes down the road. Very cool. Yeah. Well, when we have our first such uh, opportunity or look, we'll be sure to reach out to you. And uh, how should folks uh, find you if they have uh, an opportunity zone uh, deal in front of them? Sure. I appreciate that. So like I mentioned at the outset, I am a partner at Sullivan and Worcester based in Boston. I'm in the corporate and real estate groups. I focus a lot on opportunity zones. I do a lot of private equity, uh, real estate matters for both domestic and foreign investors in and around the country. So you can look me up there. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. I agree. I really had a great time and enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you, John. This has been very educational for sure. Thanks, everyone, for for listening, for rating, reviewing, and uh, for sharing, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you. Stay safe. Cheers. Thanks, guys.